Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and this week I'm going to tell you about the horrific tale of Terry Joe Duperalt, the sea waif. In the fall of 1961, the 11-year-old became a girl lost at sea during a sailing trip with her family from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas. She survived four days floating like a piece of cork in the middle of the ocean to the chagrin of one man who also survived. So this episode is kind of a murder, mystery, and survival story all balled up into one. Terry Joe's family was originally from Green Bay. I'm from Michigan, so I kind of know the accent. You'll hear it. Kando, pop, you know, like you do. Well, here's Terry Joe talking about her dad who wanted to sail around the world. So he took his family on a test run on a sailboat that left from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas. Terry Joe gave an interview in 2019, nearly 60 years after her ordeal. I remember that we had a a very happy family. My dad taught us a lot about the out of doors. It was my dad's dream. He always liked boats. His dream was to live on a boat and go around the world. He came up with the idea that we were going to charter a boat to see if we could handle, you know, being on the water. Terry and her father were very close because uh, she liked the things that he liked to do. And she had an older brother, Brian, and uh, then she had a younger sister, Renee. The charter boat was called the Bluebell, and Julian Harvey was the skipper. In fact, his first charter clients were the Duperall family. The family boarded the Blue Bell around midday Wednesday, November 8, 1961. The vessel was last seen leaving Fort Lauderdale's Port Everglades early that afternoon. Now, the Blue Bell was skippered by the former Air Force fighter pilot Julian Harvey and his wife. They had spent several days out in the Atlantic with the family, and they even went to an island in the Bahamas for an afternoon. But for some reason, Julian Harvey one night suggested that they take a night sail. We were all excited because we thought, wow, sailing at night, we hadn't done that. And it would seem like a very nice, you know, friendly evening and everyone was fine. So everyone was fine at that point. So Terry Jo went to bed surrounded by her loving family. And then she was startled awake by a sudden big commotion. She heard pounding. Then I woke up to my brother screaming and he was screaming, help, daddy, help. It was one of those screams that you knew something bad was happening. You knew that he was in danger. I decided to go up on deck and find out what was happening. As I came out here, and this would have been the kitchen, my mother and brother were lying there, and there was a big pool of blood. I don't know if I knew they were dead. I thought I saw blood in one area of the cockpit. I also thought that I saw a rifle. Then suddenly she was met by a wild-eyed Julian Harvey who slapped her in the face and told her to get back down below deck. Went back down and I got back in my bed. I just laid there and then water started coming into my cabin. Then he came in my cabin and he had a gun in his hand and he just stared at me. We made eye contact and he didn't say anything and he backed out. And then... I decided that I couldn't stay there any longer because the water was making my mattress float, so I waded through and I went on top of the deck again. So apparently, Julian Harvey asked Terry Joe about the vessel's dinghy. 
It had been floating on the port side, and he asked the child, is the dinghy loose? To which she replied, she didn't know. That was the first time I really was afraid. Eventually, Julian found the line that was connected to the dinghy, and he told Terry Jo to hold onto it. When he came back, the line had slipped through her fingers. So he jumped in the water after the dinghy that was floating away and left her there on the sinking ship. So this corrupt captain leaves her alive. I guess he thought, hey, the boat's sinking, so she's going to drown anyway. But this young kid had a will to survive. I knew the boat was going down, and it was do this or die. And she had situational awareness. She had paid attention to the things around her. Despite seeing the bodies of her family members lying dead, young Terry Joe had the presence of mind to remember that there was another flotation device on board the vessel. I scrambled over the sails to the top of the deck where I knew a cork raft was, untied it, threw it over the side, and got in it. Remember, this kid is 11, and she had the presence of mind to take inventory of what was on board that vessel. But it, unfortunately, the line got caught on the bluebell for a moment. She went underwater, but finally got free. The way Harvey left me there, I knew that something bad had happened, and I was afraid of him. And that's why I, I didn't say anything. I didn't call out. I stayed, you know, perfectly still. It was like I was trying to hide, and here you are in the middle of the ocean in a little raft. How can you hide? The boat was gone. No lights, nothing. Her family massacred. She's all alone, 200 miles out in the ocean for days, bobbing around. I was just alone. I I don't know how to explain it. I just sat there and just coped. She floated the 200 miles out into the ocean. There were a number of ships that came past and didn't even see her. Now, the life raft that Terry Joe got off the Bluebell was white, the same color as white caps in the ocean. I mean, it was impossible to see her from the air. So at approximately 12.35 p.m. on Monday, November 13th, a crew member aboard the Gulf Lion saw a man waving frantically from a dinghy. It was drifting in their direction. He was shouting, help, I have a dead baby on board. So they pulled him aboard and they saw a young child with red hair wearing a life jacket inside the dinghy. She was dead. It was the body of seven-year-old Renee Duperalt, Terry Joe's little sister. Julian Harvey told the crew that he was forced to abandon the catch alone and take the dinghy along with the body of the child. A later autopsy did reveal the child had died from drowning. Three days later, on November 16th, a child was rescued from the Northwest Providence Channel by the Greek freighter Captain Theo. One crew member was looking out at the white caps and noticed that one seemingly did not disappear. You know how the ocean undulates, like the water is very dark blue and black and then the white caps? Well, he spotted her little raft. The second officer saw that there was a white raft carrying a young, blonde-haired child dressed in a white cotton blouse and pink corduroy pants, and she was leaning back and waving feebly. She was near death. The captain ordered the freighter's engine stopped, and the life raft lowered, noting that sharks were circling close to the little cork boat. Crew members shouted at the child not to jump into the water. Finally, she was hoisted aboard the Captain Theo and placed in a spare cabin. At the time, Terry Joe was incoherent and barely able to talk. She was covered with salt and she was sunburned and she was given water and orange juice. The doctor put Vaseline on her chapped lips. 
She finally was able to hoarsely identify herself as 11-year-old Terry Joe Duperalt, informing the crew that she had been floating aboard the cork float for several days after her boat sank. But eventually, she lapsed into a semi-comatose state. So the captain of the Captain Theo immediately informed the Coast Guard that they had discovered this child and that she was in need of medical care. So they sent a rescue helicopter and Terry Joe, who was suffering from severe sunburn, dehydration and exposure, was airlifted to Jackson Memorial Hospital in critical condition. And finally, she was able to tell doctors about her ordeal, what happened to her family, and how the captain had abandoned her. Now, while she was in the hospital, Captain Harvey was being interviewed by the Coast Guard, and he was told that there was a survivor. Well, when I was in the hospital, Captain Harvey was being interrogated by the Coast Guard. And they interrupted whatever was happening to say that a survivor was found. So on November 17th, midway through Harvey's scheduled interrogation, he was informed that Terry Joe had indeed survived and was rescued the day before and that her condition was improving. His response, oh my God. And then, isn't that wonderful? And all of a sudden, after learning there was a survivor and that there would be an impending investigation, Harvey asked to be excused from further interrogation. He claimed that he was tired he wanted to speak with his wife's family, you know, she's dead, and they granted him his request. So he leaves and drives a short distance toward Biscayne Boulevard in downtown Miami, where he checked into the Sandman Motel under an assumed name, John Monroe. He paid cash for the room. He then penned a two-page suicide note before committing suicide by slashing his thigh, ankles, and jugular vein with a razor blade in the motel room. I'm surprised he didn't head right toward Jackson Memorial Hospital, find Terry Joe's room, and put a pillow over her face. What a guy. A lucky maid found his body approximately two hours later. The suicide note was addressed to a close friend from his days in the military. The note left no explanation or apologies for all of his actions, but simply ended with the words, I got too tired and nervous. I couldn't stand it any longer. Poor baby. The note also requested that the recipient take care of his 14-year-old son, Lance, and that Harvey himself be buried at sea. Good place for him. Too bad he wasn't alive when they buried him at sea. Well, the conclusion of the inquiry was that Harvey had planned to kill his wife to collect on her $20,000 double indemnity insurance policy, which would have been doubled if she died accidentally, which she did, seemingly. And back then, in like the early 60s, 20000 40000 bucks was a lot of money. However, investigators speculated that Dr. Duperall may have witnessed either the act of the murder or the disposal of the body. And so Harvey had to kill Dr. Duperalt, his wife, and his two children because they may have witnessed the murder. And likely, he had to retrieve his wife Renee's body from the ocean to add credibility to his story to get the insurance money, and they saw it. So if Harvey had not committed suicide, he would have been prosecuted for the murder of all those who had died on board the Bluebell and the attempted murder of Terry Joe. I mean, his boat was sunk either way before he killed himself. And he had lots of experience with that. This wasn't his first rodeo. Harvey had a sketchy past. 
He survived a 1949 car crash that killed his second wife and her mother. Apparently, his 1946 Plymouth Deluxe that he had been driving plunged off a bridge at high speed into the bayou on a rainy night, and Julian was able to swim to safety. Do you sense a pattern here? He left his wife Joanne and her mother Myrtle to drown. Then another boat, one of his yalls, the Torbatross, also sank after running into the submerged wreckage of the warship San Marcos, which sank in 1911 in shallow water in the Chesapeake Bay. So what is a yawl, you ask? Well, it's a two-masted rig sailboat, one mast on the bow, the other on the stern, with the mizzen mast stepped far aft so that the mizzen boom overhangs the stern. Oh. Here in the South, the plural of y'all is all y'all. Anywho, crew members repeatedly warned Harvey to steer the yawl clear of the wreckage. And he repeatedly sailed around the area saying he was trying to read the inscription on a buoy marking the site. They're called binoculars. Get some. So he sank that boat. Then his powerboat, the Valiant, also sank under suspicious circumstances off the coast of Cuba in 1958. All these losses and tragedies had paid out large insurance settlements financially benefiting Julian Harvey. He had taken out a large insurance policy on this wife as well. So based on Terry Joe's testimony, the Coast Guard concluded that Harvey had killed everybody on the boat. And she witnessed her family die, and now she is still alone. All alone. She went on to live with her aunt and uncle. She says growing up was very difficult without her family, especially her father. It's hard to even imagine for an 11-year-old. She just witnessed her family die, and... Now she's all alone and she doesn't know what the future is. I was the first one that could go in to see her. And I gave her a nice big hug and then we were just to try to be as normal as we could be all the time. She didn't have her immediate family, but she had the um, next closest to her. I love my aunt and uncle dearly. And I, to, the, to this day, they're my parents. But at that time, I never wanted to let go of my mom and dad, and so growing up it was very difficult. I didn't believe my father was dead because I had not seen him. I would just pick up and leave on a whim. So I would drive to like North Carolina Beach or Florida the beach looking for my dad. I was always searching. I did that for many, many years, until I was about 35, then I accepted it finally. Throughout the years, I had a lot of ups and downs, and I've worked with that, and I think it's to be expected of someone who's gone through what I went through. As I became an adult, I really did realize that, that my mother was a survivor. I think her, her strong will and everything uh, panned out throughout all of her life. So that's Terry Joe's daughter, and of course, Terry Joe has been married to Ron Fastbender for the last seven years, and between them, they have six children from past marriages. But this story, I think, shows the power of evil and the strength of the human spirit to survive and not be dominated by that evil, and the ability to find love again, which is all we ever really want, is to be loved, and of course, not abandoned at sea. Glub, glub. Well, know that I love you, and I thank you for listening to my Full Rigor podcast every week. 
And by the way, if you like this podcast theme, I have several other episodes that follow the Lost at Sea thread, such as episode 116, Where is Lynn Friend? In August of 1994, just as she was set to leave her home in Hallandale Beach for her new home with her new man in Tennessee, Lynn Friend vanished without a trace and her body apparently dumped far out in the Atlantic Ocean by Clifford Friend, her estranged husband, who vowed she'd never leave the state with their son alive. But after two decades and a massive ocean search along the Miami coastline, Lynn's body has never been found. But police were still able to get their man thanks to a friend who flips on his friend, Clifford Friend. Next up, episode 77, The Ghost of Chuck and Mrs. Muir. Remember, they owned the Charlie's Crab restaurant franchise. While there are many deadly boating accidents in South Florida involving very famous people, some of them involve wrecks or people falling overboard. But one deadly boating mystery on the high seas claimed the life of four people during a freak perfect storm in the early 90s. Plus, episode three, 101 Ways to Get Rid of a Body. The best way to get rid of a body, which includes the body of Delray Beach, Florida mother Isabella Hellman, is to dump it into the Gulf Stream. She was never found after her husband sank their sailboat in the Atlantic. She remains lost at sea. He remains in prison. Feel free to listen to these past episodes commercial-free on me. Be sure to subscribe, download, and give me five stars. Also, check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. That wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Until next time, thanks for joining me.